The following message was preached at Flint Hill Baptist Church. We would love for you to join us on Sundays for life groups and worship, or on Wednesdays for adult Bible study, kids, and youth activities. For more information, visit flinthill.net. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Revelation. We've been, uh, we've been sharing for several weeks now, Revive Us, O God. This morning we're in Revelation chapter 2. And we're continuing on that theme in the book of Revelation. And uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, then you know these words can be quite strong. And uh, truthfully, probably words that we may not even want to hear as a body of Christ today. Uh, I can only imagine what it would have been like on the day when this message was first delivered to the churches. And today we're in uh, verse 12 through 17, the church at Pergamum. The, the series is Revive Us, O God. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I, and let me say this at the beginning, I really believe what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for His people is He's bringing a word to His people so that His people would turn back to Him. Over and over again, we see the message that is brought to the church, and we, and we know from the context it wasn't just meant for the church at Pergamum or Ephesus or Smyrna, uh, but it was for all the churches. Most likely, this word would have been initially given to them, but would have been shared with all the churches in Asia Minor, Minor and we know that this is God's word, and it's for us even today. Uh, so the church at Pergamon, uh, let, let's just read together Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. To the angel, the messenger to the church at Pergamon, write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there that hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to them who receive it. First and foremost, the church here, church at Pergamum. The book of Acts does not record the founding of this church. Um, uh, Paul passed through this area. According to Acts chapter 16, uh, in, in that region, but there's no record of him planting the church there. Most likely, it would have been while Paul was doing ministry in Ephesus, most likely when the gospel went out from there, that believers, and it may have been him himself, may have planted that church. It was very common for him in those days to go to the synagogue, preach the gospel, or go to the seashore, preach the gospel. Uh, we don't know exactly how. We just know they're addressed here in the book of Revelation. Uh, I want to make mention about this city, Pergamum, about 100 miles north of Ephesus, if I had a little map up here. Smyrna and Ephesus were located near the uh, water. Uh, Pergamum was not. They were about 15 miles inland. 
uh, from the Aegean Sea. Uh, it was not on a major trade route, which Ephesus would have been, most likely one of the largest cities at that time. However, uh, Pergamum is known as the ancient capital of Asia Minor, that whole area. In fact, it has been known uh, by some to record it is Asia's greatest city. Y'all probably remember Pliny, a Roman writer. Uh, he made a statement about uh, Pergamum. Uh, in, 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 in that, he said, it's by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Others have commented, uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, talking about Pergamum, uh, let's see, it was built on a large hill towering some thousand feet above the plain. It was an impressive sight. Uh, a fellow by the name of William Ramsey commented on this. He said, beyond all other cities or sites in Asia Minor, it was given... It gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, a home of authority. It sat up so high. Pergamon also, just so you know, had a huge library. Compared that to the city of Alexandria. Because of the library that was so large there, it became the center of culture and learning. They saw themselves as the defenders of the Greek culture in Asia Minor. It was, important, it was a city in, in regards to the Romans was important for their Greek uh, culture because it was a center of worship. They had multiple gods there that they worshipped. And, and it was not just something they did uh, once a year, but it was a part of way of life there. It was part of a weekly time of worship. They also, Pergamon was built the first ever temple that we know of devoted to emperor worship. Throughout this area. Now we've mentioned this before. Uh, it was well known. And I mentioned to you about Polycarp. When I shared about him. Uh, they wanted him to renounce Christ. And give his allegiance or worship to the emperor. And he refused. Remember I shared that. He said I'm a Christian. 86 years old went to his death as a martyr. Because he refused to worship the emperor. In Pergamum they had a temple devoted to this. Uh, and they built it uh, in honor of Emperor Augustus. As a result of that, the city became the central place of emperor worship. As I mentioned earlier, um, Christians in the first century were in danger of harm from emperor worship cults. In other words, everywhere else, Christians primarily were in danger once a year. Here, it was ongoing. Every day, every week, they were in danger. Why? Because they thought it was... Uh, Capital punishment to not worship the emperor. And to refuse so could lead to execution. So as you can see, Pergamum was a, a city, maybe not very big in one sense compared to Ephesus, but very much a central hotbed of emperor worship in their culture. Now what's interesting here is in verse 12, the Lord, and we see a pattern every time he brings a word to one of the churches there's a pattern. And first and foremost, we see the description. The description of what the Lord is. In fact, he says here in verse 12, he said, uh, the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. No doubt, I mean, this reminds us, if you've been with me on Wednesday night, you know that Hebrews 4.12 said, His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the one's heart. 
The holder of this sword, this sharp two-edged sword, is the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually indicated in chapter 1 in the vision that John has on the island of Patmos of the resurrected Lord. He sees this sharp two-edged sword. This, this sword depicts a couple things. One, the word's potency and power in exposing and judging the innermost thoughts of the human heart. I think John MacArthur says it best. This word never wields a dull edge. It's sharp, cutting, penetrating. Doesn't matter if you're here with me this morning or you can be running wild out there in the world. The Lord and His Word seems to find you. You know, the Gideons have it right. Uh, if you've been involved in, in that ministry, they put that word, if, I, I assume they still do, I mean, some of y'all would know, in hospitals, hotel rooms. All over the world they do that. Why? When a person opens up this word, it's amazing how God will take this word and use it to cut someone to the heart. Why is it so important to have VBS? Obviously we're in VBS mode, if you didn't notice. Why? Because God's word never returns void. Why do we preach the word? Because it's not about me, it's about His word, His power, His Holy Spirit. God's Word is what touches our life, changes our life, convicts us, transforms us into the image of Christ, to be like Christ. His Word. You take God's Word out of the equation, and you just have a little gathering. You might feel good about yourself, but you're not going to be more like Christ. Now, in this description, the Lord brings this description that, that, that He's holding this sharp, two-edged sword. Now, I will say this. Again, MacArthur helps us here. The picture of Christ right here pictures him as judge and executioner. In fact, later on in John's revelation, it describes the second coming of the Lord. He says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that by it he may strike down the people. He will rule over them with a rod of iron, tread on the winepress with the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. It's a depiction of the second coming of the coming of Christ holding this sword, this sharp two-edged sword. As you can imagine, this is not a positive, promising introduction to the church at Pergamum. And quite honestly, it's a threatening one. In fact, here at the very beginning of this word, this message, if you can imagine sitting there, I know we, 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 we're here in the 21st century, but if you can imagine sitting in that church in that moment, on that day when that message came, this word is powerful. It's one that Christ is pictured as judge and executioner. He knows where they live, and he's coming to take care of business. It is not a fluffy little introduction. In fact, the Pergamon church faced imminent judgment. In fact, disaster was looming right on the horizon for this church. In fact, it was just a short step away from compromising with the world and forsaking God altogether and facing his wrath. As he said, I would come. In fact, he says, I will come... Uh, he said, repent, or I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, in spite of all that, I mean, we see this pattern. He also commends the church for several things. Uh, one is he says that it, despite their difficult circumstances, which they, they're in, that uh, the believers courageously maintain their faith in Christ, or many of them did. He commended them for holding fast to his name. In fact, he says... Where Satan's throne is, where Satan lives or dwells. Many people have offered suggestions, what does this mean? Uh, a couple things here. One, 
uh, first and foremost, you, you, you can imagine uh, in this city there were these magnificent altars created for the Greek gods. There was four of them in particular that they made, and they were magnificent. And, and you, could, you could imagine if you walked into that city, in, in other words, in his mindset, he said all these idols, all these worshipers, all this cult worshiper could have been referenced to uh, Satan for certain, the, the, the one who wants to be worshipped and, and take, if he can, lead God's people even into that destructive heresy. And so he, he makes this comment. So many, many have suggested, well, it has to do with the, the great idolatry that's going on in the city. Uh, also, I will say this. One of those that they would have worshipped was a God called... Ooh, I'm, see, I'm going to mess it up. I practice this. If I was seeing it in Greek, it would help me right now, believe it or not. But it's an English translation. Ascalapios is, I think, I'll get it close. It's close. I mean, you're like, who cares? I mean, you're like, I don't know if you're saying it right or not, preacher. And the truth is, I'm trying the best I can. Ascalapios, if I was seeing it in Greek, it would help me in my pronunciation, believe it or not. But they had a, they had a, a temple for this God. Now, what's interesting is Ascalapios was a God of what they called healing. He was also characterized by a snake or a serpent. Uh, they actually uh, created this shrine, this temple for this God, and they filled it with non-poisonous uh, snakes. People that came to worship him would lay down on the floor, according to what I read, and they were hoping that one of the snakes would crawl over them. Thus, this God would have touched them and they would have been healed in their worship. No doubt the symbolism going on here, one could easily say where Satan dwells, where he lives in this city. The, the incredible worship of this God who pictures himself as a snake would have taken the believers back to the Garden of Eden where the snake, the serpent, shows up to destroy all that God had created. In fact, I, I mean, it, it's been recorded during the Emperor Diocletian some Christian stonecutters were executed for refusing to carve an image of this God because they believed it was a personification of Satan himself. So no doubt, there were several reasons. I mean, when we say, when he makes this statement, uh, where Satan lives or dwells or where Satan has his throne, any of those could have been a reason for saying that. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it was also a place where, uh, where emperor worship was, was not just a part of uh, uh, once a year, but it was an every day, every week routine. We see in the first few verses here, he commends them, you did not renounce your faith even in the days of Antipas. Antipas we don't know much about, no doubt a leader in the church there in Pergamum. But he, like Polycarp some years later, just like Paul, and many of the disciples, like John on the island of Patmos, faced severe and swift persecution. Antipas obviously stood the ground in his faithful witness unto the Lord. In fact, that word faithful witness, I mean, you gotta, you got to see this. This is how Jesus characterizes himself, even, even as he reveals himself to John, faithful witness. And so when the Lord, the risen Lord brings this word to the church there. When he says, Antipas is my faithful witness, he's saying he's like me. In other words, he, the words that describe Jesus describe Antipas. I can't think of any greater commendation from our Lord where he would look down upon me and you in the face of severe and 
horrible persecution and would say they endured like me. And that's exactly what he was saying about Antipas. And he was commendating, he was commending the church for standing firm. However, there were some clear charges that the Lord brought against the church at Pergamum. And this is where, you know, if we pause there about the persecution and how they stood firm and their faith in Christ, even if some were being put to death, I mean, we, we read that and we hear that, but I'm not sure we embrace that or understand that fully. Maybe if we were worshiping today in a country where you would, could be imprisoned for your faith in Jesus, we might have a better understanding of that passage. The time that was going on at this point in the first century, there was severe and great persecution for the people of God. If you said you were a Christian, it wasn't just some nominal thing that you would do or wear some cross around your neck. It means you aligned yourself with the risen Savior. And that means you were putting yourself at odds with the government that was overseeing that land. You were putting yourselves in the crosshairs to be accused, to be accused of committing a capital offense if you refused to worship Caesar. Antipas did that, just like many others, and they were put to death. If we stop right there, we might, got, might get lots of encouragement for that, but the Lord doesn't stop there. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And when he brings these charges, he brings down the gauntlet. He brings down his word like he does. And very specifically, he says, you have people there in your church, in that church at Pergamum, who hold to the teaching of Balaam. False teaching had wreaked havoc in the church there in Pergamum. In fact, it began to lead uh, 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 Christians astray, obviously infiltrated by people who may not have even been a Christian at this point. False teachers had come into their ranks. There was a doctrine and teaching that was being perpetuated, that was leading people away from the Lord and, and leading this church literally into worldliness and worldly pleasures. The two heresies he named, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, Balaam is, as you know, an Old Testament prophet for hire. And, 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 you, and if you go back and read Numbers 22 through 25, he was, he was hired to proclaim these curses upon God's people, and he, and, and he couldn't do it. He, in fact, over and over again, he was refuted. Even by a donkey, he was refuted by the Lord. Yet, so he comes up with a plan, Balaam does. And so he gets with Balak, and he gets with Moab, and he says, hey, look, why don't you get some of your women to come over here and lure all these Israelites away, to pollute them and just let them behave like godless people and just fill their hearts and minds with sexual immorality and idol worship. And unfortunately, it worked. All of a sudden, in, in that context, God's people are being led astray into all kinds of immorality and idolatry. And in the Lord's charge against the church at Pergamum, he says, you as well, you've you got people there holding to the teaching of Balaam. You're being led astray. You're being led astray into this sexual immorality and idolatry. They were seduced. You know, I, I will say to you, the Lord uh, desires, has declared in his word that God's people be pure in their hearts. We live in a day today where, I mean, definition of purity is just all over the map. But if you let God's word just let be your guide, I mean, impurity does not mean perfection. It means you come under the blood of Jesus Christ and that you are cleansed of all unrighteousness. And blessed be the name. We have a new name, a new heart, a new life, a new purpose. And God cleanses us and enables us by the Holy Spirit to live according to his word. Here, here it is. 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling we received in Christ. Yeah, that's just your Bible. Yet God's people, even here in this context, in Pergamum, with great persecution, were being led astray by the, the subtlety of immorality and idolatry. So he rebukes them. The second one uh, involves a New Testament uh, figure. He talks about the Nicolaitans. Most people say that it comes from Nicholas, which was one of the original six that were to distribute food uh, among the widows in Acts chapter 6. We don't know that for sure. could have been him or could have been people that followed after him, that he became a teacher and led people astray. We don't know for sure. We do know this, that the teaching of Nicolaitans seems to lead people into sexual immorality and to idolatry. Many will say that it's the precursor of Gnosticism that really ran rampant in the second century where they said, you know what, uh, being a Christian is all spiritual and that the physical or the flesh really doesn't matter, so you can live however you want to. You can pollute the flesh because it's going to die anyway, but it's all about the spiritual. And all of a sudden you've got Christians promoting this way of life, which led them into all kind of immorality and idolatry. Some people have commented that Pergamum, the church of Pergamum, is, is known as the church that has been saturated, inundated with worldliness. Worldliness is a big word. It just means when I become preoccupied, preoccupied or have interest in things of this world, which overrides things of the Lord or for His kingdom. I, I will tell you over and over again in Scripture... God has called us not to love this world, but to love Him first and foremost. Now, over and over again, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's just your Bible, Romans chapter 12. In fact, in Titus 2.11, we're called as believers to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Over and over again, James teaches us friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And here the church at Pergamon had melted those things together and they thought, well, it's okay, it's not a big deal. We're still doing these things well. But they had over time allowed this to infiltrate their hearts, their teaching, and their way of life. Now I will say to you by description here, most of the believers did not participate. I mean, we can tell, we can sense that from the passage. However, it was known. And the believers that were committed to Christ just kind of closed their eyes to the immorality that was around them, among them, and acted like, well, I guess it's not a big deal. Let me remind us, the Lord says, I will come against you, literally all of you, with the sword of my mouth. In other words, just because we're not the one who may be participating in that doesn't mean that you're not going to be held accountable before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's holding the church at Pergamum accountable for their actions. All of them. They all have a responsibility. We're all called by the name of Jesus. And if there's any immorality, then we all suffer under that. It's a strong word. I mean, we live in a day today in a culture today that I honestly, they, they've rewritten. I don't even know if we even use the word immorality anymore. It's the new morality. I mean, I don't know. Y'all are way smarter than I am.
I just want to make an observation here. In every one of these passages in, that, we're, that the Lord gives a word to the church, he makes this statement. In, in, in this case, it's verse 13. He says, I know. I know. And he says, I know where you live. And he's given the indication. But here's what I want you to hear me. Every time the Lord uses that word, I know, it's very specific in the Greek. And he means that Jesus, Jesus, this Lord Jesus Christ, is ever-present, all-knowing, and Lord of his church. He knows exactly what is going on. There's no way to hide from the ever-present Lord. There's no way to skirt under the rug God that knows everything about me personally. Richard Ross wrote a book in 2015. You may or may not know Richard. Richard uh, probably doesn't know me at all. I met him back in Mobile probably in the mid-1990s. No, no, no. Let me back up. Early 1990s, about 1991. And Richard wrote a little book talking about youth ministry. Anyway, so forth and so on. Fast forward, he wrote a book in 2015 talking about the senior pastor and the reformation of youth ministry. We need to hear this today. God brought me back to that just, just this week. In that book, he quoted a study that was done in 2005. Now, I'm not one that usually does all that, but you need to hear this. 2005, that's been a few years ago. I think by math, 18 years ago when that study came out. In that study, it made this statement about church teenagers. It says, most of the, he said, the faith of most church teenagers can be described, and here's the word, moral therapeutic deism. That's a fancy word. It means three things. One, I believe that God exists. Two, that he's nice and wants to be nice to me. Three, he's not real relevant in my daily life. Well, except for one exception. When I need something, I'll call on him and he'll come and help me. He takes care of that and then he goes back to being irrelevant in my day-to-day -day life. This isn't about teenagers. Please hear this. In that same study, they made this same discovery. For the most part, teenagers do not reject the faith of their parents. They just rather mirror it. Most church teenagers have grown up surrounded by Christian adults who also embrace Christ for his benefits. A Christ that is way too small and unbiblical. In these churches, in this church right here in Pergamum, Jesus, the I know, is trying to reestablish the truth that he is king and lord of his people and his church. He knows all, sees all, and is ever-present right now and is inviting his people to turn. From what? Their shallow, erroneous beliefs about him and his church. Just like Pergamum, we must repent of watered-down thinking about Jesus, the king of kings and the lord of lords, or else. What do you mean, preacher? Or else, you know, what? We might, we might find ourselves in the same boat Pergamum's in. And the Lord who has the sword, a double-edged sword, coming out of his mouth, may come to us as well. You know, God is a God of grace and mercy. How do I know that? I just, I mean, it's biblical. What does, he, what does he invite? 
What does he invite the church to do? It's real simple. Verse 16, repent. To repent means literally to turn away from whatever it is, in this case, erroneous thinking, or too small of thinking about our Lord and Savior. Or the thinking that says, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm not doing it. Who cares? But he said, repent. Turn away from it. Turn back to me. Turn back to holiness and purity in your heart and your life. Church, can I just be really brutally honest today? You know what people around us need to see? Is God's people repentant before a holy God who's real and personal and alive. That really matters. My life matters. Our life matters. What we do day in and day out matters unto the Lord. He sees it all. He knows it all. We're still in that battle today, are we not? Not much has changed since the first century in the church at Pergamum. There's still er erroneous heresies out here that want to say, us, no, 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 God is a feel-good God. He just wants to bless you, and He is a God of blessing. Don't get me wrong, He is. Hallelujah. But He is also a God who holds His people accountable. So for us, because I can't help but to do this, church, it's us. We are His people called by His name. Those that have come under the blood of Jesus that are in this room this morning, you know Christ personally as your Lord and Savior. The message is to us. The command to repent is to us. Father, I just want to praise you today and I just want to thank you. God, as we come to this response time, God, let your word, let the plumb line of your word fall in our hearts today. God, more than anything, I pray, Lord Jesus, search our hearts and our minds. God, if there's anything inside of us that is offensive to you, that is dishonoring to you, God, would you bring it to light? God, I pray that you would help us to hear your word to repent. That's not a bad word. That's a great word. It's a, it's a word that's full of grace and mercy. That you're a God who abounds in love, steadfast, committed love. Hallelujah. And your love covers a multitude of sins. Thank you, Jesus. God, let us be like David who would come before you and say, God, cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse my heart, Father, that I would be fully, completely, wholeheartedly devoted to you, to you alone. Father, there's so much at stake. It was at stake in the, in the church at Pergamum, and it's, it's at stake right here at the church of Flint Hill. There's a world around us who wants to know if Jesus is real. Is he really alive? Is he really on his throne? Is he really who he says he is? Oh God, please be exalted among your people today. The promise is you will be exalted among the nations. Hallelujah. You have said every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.
to God be the glory. God, I pray you'd let it start right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, church. Right now, we're going to sing a song of response. If you're here, friend, hear me. Please do business with the Lord. Lay your heart before Him. In this moment, if you realize your need for a Savior, come forward. Make that public. We'll introduce you to Christ, lead you to Him personally to be your Lord and Savior. If you know that God's calling you here, then come. Make that public. All right, let's sing this together.